Well, um, Henrik, um, thank you so much for coming. You are flying in from uh, from Helsinki this morning to participate in uh, in the studio. So, big thanks to you. Very happy to be invited. What does it mean to be a Finn? To be a Finn, you know, what we are proud of is what we call our sizzle. You know, that's the grit, perseverance. You know, that's something you need to have when you come from a small country. You know, so we're a small and proud country. Uh, and that's something to be to be very happy of. And can we see um, part of this uh, sisu in uh, in your company in Kone? I think we can. <laughs> Where do we see it? Well, if you think about it, uh, you know, we are a 112-year-old company. You know, in the elevator escalator business. And it was like one Asian customer said to me that, Henrik, how did this happen? That, you know, you come from a country with hardly any elevators and no tall buildings. And yet <laughs> you sell more elevators than anyone else in the world. That How did this happen? And I think there's been some uh, sizzle, some grit, perseverance, some fighting spirit behind that. <laughs> so tell me, how did it happen? Well, I think, you know, if you look at many Nordic companies, it's the same thing. We don't have very big home markets. And uh, when we get into something, you have to get into a niche and you have to make sure you become very good at it mm-hmm. and uh, have a very long-term mindset. You know, we are a family-owned company, you know, started off as a Finnish company, But then the family realized that that's not the future. You cannot survive in international competition and start to very uh, proactively, aggressively expand abroad. But I think the really key thing has been a very strong culture of innovation. Mm. Because when you come from a small country, unless you are really good at what you do, you're not going to survive. Actually, if you look at many Nordic companies, it's pretty much the same uh, things that have been behind many of their success. Mm. We'll come back to the innovation, but first, why, you know, elevators, it sounds like really dull, right? Yet, it is one of the finest businesses you can be in. So tell me, what's so good about this business? I think it's actually a a really fun business. If you think about all the encounters and all the things that happen in an elevator every (laughs) day, you know, we don't need to get in there, but I think everyone has their own stories. But at the same time, you can actually say that particularly our service business is pretty boring because it's so stable, predictable. But I think the boring is good. Mm. So I think it's a hugely fascinating business, very global business that operates, you know, very, very broad geographic basis. Mm. So there are just so many interesting things. And if you think that we move a billion people every day, so you can just uh, think about all the things that happen in the elevators and escalators that we service and install every day. Mm. But the main drivers, um, can you tell us about them? So urbanization, more mm-hmm. people moving to cities. I mean, in a way, we are kind of uh, piling them high, you know, the people these days. Well, we know that the world has constantly been urbanizing. You know, the urbanization happened in China starting about 2000 really peaked maybe uh, 2015. Mm. I mean, it was the biggest migration of people this world has seen so far. And uh, let's see if anything can challenge that. But at the same time, in every other country, people are moving into cities for, you know, better life, better uh, job opportunities, better healthcare, better education. Uh, So cities are something that draws talent. And therefore, there's continues to be good growth there. You know, when I look at this business, uh, the likelihood that people are going to start moving less is quite low. Mm -hmm. So I think the need for it will continue to be there just because the way we live and the way people prefer to live. Mm. You've been um, very uh, strong in China for a long time. What was the key to establishing that position? It was, again, you you know, uh, a long-term vision 
and clarity of what we want to achieve. You know, the leaders of Kone at that time really saw that, hey, this urbanization is going to be a really long-term megatrend. And that's what we always focused on. What are the big trends? And then investing uh, heavily into it. You know, uh, putting the focus there, getting a very strong local leadership mm. and uh, being bold about how one goes into the country on a very broad basis. So today we have 600 offices uh, around the country in China. And, and that's been really part of the success that uh, really decided we're not only going to stay in the big cities, we're going to go throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And that has been a huge success. And then innovation played a huge role here. You know, when Kone really started to grow in China, there was a time when most companies still brought, I would call, yesterday's technology and products to China. Mm. Uh, but Kone at that time was very bold and said, no, actually, latest innovation, we're going to bring them first to China. Mm. And the Chinese customers, they really appreciated it. We brought the same energy efficiency, the same quality, the same design, actually, then, of course, applied to Chinese needs. So very early, we were in China for China. But it's really this philosophy that we wanted to go China first with innovation really paid off big time. In, in business school, um, you know, one learns that sometimes you need two brands to compete with each other. And you, you have a two-brand strategy in China. Can you tell us about that? So that was uh, one of the clear ways in the beginning that we have the Kone brand. But at the same time, there's always been a strong market for local Chinese brands. And we wanted to have a local Chinese brands that can compete against the local ones. So then first we bought the minority stake uh, back in 2005 in something called Giant Corner. And then successively we bought uh, more and now we own 100%. So we have two brands, but they uh, operate in different segments uh, and uh, cater for different needs. So how much of your business now is in China, roughly? It's about 35%. Mm. And um, given what's happening in China, and the worries we're seeing in the property market, does that make you nervous? Clearly, the Chinese market has been a bit more uncertain now for the, for the past year. At the same time, you know, China will continue to be the biggest market in the world. Uh, it is going to decline this year, but we still think it will be a huge market. And China is also going through a transition like most other growing markets that first it was about, you know, installing a lot of new elevators. Mm. And now we're starting to see the service business grow very fast. And we have a very strong position there as well. And we can see that the modernization of uh, elevators that were installed about 15 years ago is now a very fast-growing business. So we are in a transition. New equipment will continue to be a huge market there, no question. But where a big part of the growth will come from services, and that's what we're transitioning to now. Mm. What about the rest of the world? It's kind of a neat market because you are not so many players, right? So you have uh, Tyson, Schindler, Otis, and you pretty much. Well, it, that, that's what it looks like. Uh, when, I mean, have you, have you kind of carved up the world between you? <laughs> not, not at all. You know, if you look at the service business in Europe, serv- European service market is still the biggest market for services in the world. Mm. There, these top four players, uh, we represent about 55% of the market. So there's a huge amount of mid-sized and smaller players. Then you have a bunch of Japanese players. So there's still plenty of room for consolidation in this industry. And in services and also uh, for new elevators and escalators, China is still quite uh, fragmented. You mentioned the um, service business a couple of times, and in my mind, that really is the, the beauty of the whole thing, right? The secret sauce, because you have to service these elevators, mm. otherwise, uh, you know, they come and close them down, right? 
So um, t- tell us about the service business. Why is it so good? It's a very stable business. Uh, because clearly you, you need to service elevators. And there's also good growth in it. So, you know, we've been growing it constantly over the years. And it's a low capital intensity business. So it's uh, very uh, people heavy. Uh, however, not a lot of capital in it. But I think the stability uh, combined with the growth is, of course, a, a great business to be in. And so you know what to do remote monitoring, I understand. So the, the basically the elevator tells tells you guys when you need to come and sort it out. We have been really pioneering this uh, in our industry, uh, how you bring digital connectivity and therefore can do your service in much better ways. There's still a lot of regulation that you need to uh, visit them physically, but when we connect them, we get a much better outcome for our customers. It's just remarkable how much better it gets. Mm. And that our customers are appreciating, and that is driving a lot of our growth also uh, in our top line, these new services that our customers are buying. Mm. Now, this service business is so good and profitable. Do you, do you actually make money on, uh, on selling the new lifts, or is it all coming from the service? We do make money in all of our businesses. So we have three different businesses. It's about selling new elevators and escalators. It is about maintaining them and it's about modernizing them. So it is a true life cycle business and we are profitable in each of those parts. Yeah. So um, innovation, I mean, um, isn't an elevator an elevator? That that one can say, but uh, like every business, there is a, a huge amount that you can you can improve. So so let's say now you come into an elevator, right? So uh, how, what does it take for you to say, wow, wow, what a ride, you know, I'm having a good time in this elevator. What 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 is a touch and feel you as a CEO? How do you how do you see this? Of course, you you first uh, see what are the waiting times to get into the elevator. Uh, that means that uh, is the building properly planned and, and designed. And then when you get into it, of course, uh, good design is really important. Uh, is it clear to you where you're going? Uh, so also uh, that aspect. And then, of course, it's how smooth the ride is. Uh, and, uh, you know, everyone can have their own feeling. And, and we've done a lot of research some years ago on what people expect Elevators, and then you need to uh, meet those expectations. So, in the end, what do you want? We want people to come out of the elevator with a smile on their face. <laughs> you know, uh, as a little bit of an elevator nerd, what I do is that I stand in the back corner and lean into the corner because then you can feel the vibrations more and see how well it's been serviced and installed the elevator. But of course, that's not what everyone would do. I thought that was because you were an introvert Finn and try to get away from the other people. Yeah, well, that's one of the profiles that, <laughs> you know, of users. <laughs> What's the best elevator ride you ever had? I, of course, I have to say the, the one which uh, where you play to all of your senses and uh, is just a phenomenal ride. You can hardly feel you moving, even though it's a very fast elevator. Is in our test shaft goes down underground. But if I think about one uh, that is open for uh, users every day. I would say uh, it's the Bloomberg building in London. Here, uh, the architect, Lord Foster, wanted to be like a feeling of floating in the air. And you come up in the elevator and you can see St. Paul's uh, coming up behind you or in front of you. That is just a fantastically designed overall experience. Mm. Well, I'll check it out. Um, Lastly, on innovation, where is the innovation taking place now? And perhaps you can talk a bit about energy efficiency and, and so on. There are a lot of very exciting things happening in innovation, as everyone knows today, and everything from new materials to digital uh, services. And of course, 
what is innovation? It's about finding something that adds value to your customers or the end users of your equipment. So where are we focusing? Of course, as you said, energy efficiency, a huge thing nowadays. But at the same time, it's the user experience that has to do with design. How do you play to all of people's senses? Mm. Because we're living in an experience uh, world, making the uh, journey very simple. You know, you don't need to touch anything. You just walk in and it knows where you're going and it can be about directing or guiding people. Then another innovation that is very key to us right now is that how do we help our customers on construction sites be much more efficient? Mm. We know that construction sites, there's a huge problem with productivity. We have a lot of innovations there, how we can make builders build buildings faster uh, when we put in the elevator earlier and that way save time, save money and help uh, making uh, apartments more affordable. If we um, change uh, gear a bit and um, just uh, try to get to know you a bit better, who is um, who is Henry Gernot? You know, a Finn who has uh, lived uh, much of, uh, of his life in Finland, but uh, a good part also abroad uh, with a you know very international family. Mm. Your father was a well-known industrialist in in Finland, and uh, you know a really grand man. And I have been lucky enough to meet him. When you grow up with a very successful father or mother, you can you can either be very inspiring, uh, or you can think, "Gee, no way, I'm going to be that successful," and then you uh, <laughs> you turn out a bit miserable. <laughs> so, tell me about your relationship to your father. As you said, you have you have met him. Uh, he is a, a very human person. You know, has done an amazing career, but also always someone who has shown great respect for everyone around him, including, of course, his family. Of course, I always looked as a child that he wasn't home at lot. But uh, luckily, I have a mother who, you know, had a huge influence on all of us children uh, in our youth, um, and that kind of sparked an interest for this. But I must say that, you know, when I was younger, my mother always thought that I was going to be a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that's how clear the path was from the beginning. Uh, but in the end, you know, I got on this path and, and found my way and, and have enjoyed it uh, uh, tremendously. Do you ask him for advice? I do. Uh, I'm in a lucky position that when you are a leader... Very often you have problems uh, that uh, you just need to be able to talk to someone about, but it's difficult to talk to your direct team. Mm. And uh, he is one of these people I can talk to and and explain my problem, and he asks me three or four questions, and immediately the things are much more clear in my mind. What do you think is the key to a successful father-son relationship? Of course, it's it's all about respect, and there shouldn't be any expectations I don't think there was any expectation of what I should do. There was encouragement, uh, but never you have to do this, you should do that. And I think uh, we are uh, four siblings and we were always uh, allowed to encourage to find our own path and do what interested us. A few weeks back, we had uh, David Salomon of Goldman Sachs um, on the program and uh, you spent a lot of time at Goldman's as well. Can we see that in any way now in the way you run Coney? I think there was a lot that one could learn from from Goldman Sachs. Those were uh, 11 fantastic years of my career when I think I learned a lot. I think what I learned early on is the importance of teamwork, uh, the importance of uh, culture, how that really breeds success. 
and the importance of being uh, totally uncompromising when it comes to hiring and developing people. Mm. So I think those basic things that I would say are behind every successful company was something that is such a strong part of the ethos of that uh, of, of uh, Goldman Sachs. So that was, of course, very ingrained. And the other thing you learn when you are in an environment like this is that you learn how to learn fast very well. Um, now, you came up through the financial um, route. You, you were the, C- the CFO, the chief financial officer of uh, Coney before you took over as a CEO. Don't you think it's a bit strange that no more people come through the HR route? I mean, this is a people company, no? I'm, I'm saying because in, in Norway, I think only three out of the top 50 companies have CEOs who came up through the HR route. It is a very good reflection because when you, if you want to be successful, as we all know, we all say that people is our biggest asset. Uh, that's what every company says, and it is very true. And of course, the people in HR are critical in how we develop, how we uh, drive that talent. Uh, I would say that uh, we have people at Corner who have gone from the HR side to take business responsibilities, P&L responsibilities. Mm. Uh, However, not to that level yet. When I think about the most successful HR leaders that I work with, those are clearly people who, you know, I wouldn't hesitate for a second giving them a very large uh, commercial responsibility. Mm. You mentioned um, the corporate culture and the importance of that. Just what are you trying to achieve at Kone? And what, what is your corporate culture like? At Kone, our corporate culture is strong, is in our own feeling. And and it's not only actually feeling. We've researched it a lot. Uh, We've studied it uh, many years in a row. And what do Kone's employees say about our culture? They talk a lot about uh, innovation. They talk a lot about clarity of direction. And then what is really important, they say that Kone's values are compatible with their own values. So I think we have a good starting point and in all these studies we do come up uh, very highly compared to benchmarks in, in how they are culture. But what does it mean in practice? It's clear that people like to work there, people enjoy working. And culture is, of course, something you need to constantly work on, constantly develop and evolve. There's no question about that. Mm. What are you trying in particular to sort out just now? If we think about today's environment and how do you motivate, how do you get the best out of uh, everyone in, in today's environment, clearly it is a lot about how do you empower people, how do you make sure that everyone uh, can contribute their best so you can uh, talk about inclusion, mm-hmm. very important. At the same time, at Kone, we have a very decentralized way of uh, running our business. So we give a lot of local accountability empowerment, Mm. which is great when you want to uh, respond quickly to customer needs. Mm. So you become very fast on that side. But when you have huge changes, you know, tectonic plates moving like we can feel right now, then how do you get the same direction for everyone in that environment? So how do we create speed on big changes is something uh, that we're working on. Uh, and of course, it's all the time about direction and better leadership. Mm. What's the biggest mistake you've made at Connie? It must be, you know, when you try to run the business, when you try to go in and uh, direct people how to do things, you can get results for, for some period of time, but you're not creating anything that is long-lasting and you're not creating through the motivation and initiative of people. 
So that's something you learn very quickly. And, and that is something... So too much micromanagement. Too much micromanagement and directive leadership. And it's something that's very easy to fall into when times are tough. Mm. So when times are tough, you need to focus even more on setting the context, setting your direction, motivating people, and really helping them you know, go places where they wouldn't go otherwise. Mm. Now, talking about tough times, I mean, given the... What's going on in the world now? We are seeing, you know, very high price inflation. So prices are increasing in a lot of your input costs. Yep. How are you coping with that? It's clear that uh, this environment that we operate right now is a totally new environment. I mean, most of people who work for Kone has n- have never seen inflation like this. You know, we come from a 15-year period, or we can call it extreme price stability. So clearly, it takes... Uh, new capabilities of how do we live in an inflationary world? What are the expectations? And that was a little bit about what I said, that how do you create that urgency of change and operating in a different way on a broad scale in a very decentralized environment, uh, how we operate the company. The shareholder structure in, um, in Kone is very interesting. You have um, the Halin family, Owning roughly twenty percent, uh, but controlling much more of the um, of the votes. And um, just how do you tell me how is it to have a large dominant shareholders like that? I think we are in a very lucky position at Cornet to have a clear uh, owner who clearly has a track record and, and a history within the family of uh, really wanting to uh, develop the company proactively all the time. Mm. So I would say the way we run Cone is very much like a any public company. But at the same time, we have the clarity and long-term view of our owner to provide help and, and support to leadership. Uh, I would say in turbulent times, it is really an asset because you always have someone who you can talk to, you can you can spar with, you can exchange ideas, and I think that's been very valuable. Mm. Now, on the one hand, um, having a big shareholder like that, you know, does give you that uh, stability and long-term thinking. But on the other hand, having shares with uh, you know unequal um, voting rights, it's not something we are particularly keen on in the oil fund. How, how would you defend that? That's of course uh, totally a matter for our owners. Uh, but when I see from the inside. I don't see that that would have hurt us. On the contrary, it's someone who has very much the long-term health of the company in their mind every day. And, uh, you know, it's been owning the family for almost 100 years. And, of course, they think about, hey, how do we make sure that we remain a healthy and strong company for another 100 or 200 years? Mm. So I, I only seen, as a leader of that company, the benefits of it. And I think this is, of course, in the end, very much a question for the owners. Yeah. You also have a lot of cash. I mean, cash is good, but uh, should you really have 2 billion uh, euros on the balance sheet? Well, we just paid out o- over a billion of that to our shareholders. Yeah, thank you very much. So, it's on, a, on behalf of the Norwegian population. You're welcome. Also, as a shareholder, I'm, I'm very happy about that. So, we have had that's enabled us to have a, a very uh, generous and proactive dividend policy. But as I mentioned, it may seem that we are a very consolidated industry, but in fact, we are not. There are a lot of mid-sized and even large players in this industry. And we think uh, consolidation would make a ton of sense uh, for innovation and scale. And therefore, if something is available, we are very interested 
in uh, acquiring good businesses. So we have felt that having a strong balance sheet uh, gives us that flexibility. And also in turbulent times, it allows you to just stay 100% focused on executing your strategy mm. and not worrying about your balance sheet. And mm. I think that's we've seen in the past now 15 years, I think that's a real asset. Are you waiting for one of these defining moments to come up soon? I must say that you can say it's a bit of a strange industry that uh, a lot of people want to buy in this industry, but there hasn't been many people who have wanted to sell. So I'm not <laughs> holding my breath, uh, but clearly if something attractive is uh, out there, uh, we are going to be very interested, of course, in the right terms and all of that. How can you be best possible prepared for these defining moments? It's uh, constantly to understand what these businesses are. Uh, and I think in the end, the most important thing is to make sure your own business is healthy. Yeah. Because then it enables you to do things. As leaders, we all the time have to do a lot of choices and uh, pare down it to a small number of choices where we really focus. Uh, if your base business is not in good shape, then you cannot choose to do big defining acquisitions or similar transactions. Well, good luck with everything that comes up. It's been a pleasure having you on the program, Henrik. Thank you so much for making the trip to Norway. Thank you. 